Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg of the Remnant Podcast. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Uh, this week's episode is brought to you by Donors Trust. And of course, this podcast is a part and parcel of the mothership, The Dispatch, which you can visit at thedispatch.com at any time you like. Um, we would, in fact, be thankful for, to you if you did. So um, this episode came together at the last minute because... Uh, one, I got to get out of town for Thanksgiving, and two, I wanted to do a Thanksgiving episode, and I thought the perfect person to do this um, was a guy who's so sharp you can't shake his hands without getting a paper cut. Um, my friend, and technically kind of like my boss now. Uh, Bosses love it when you say technically. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm I'm a, I'm a free spirit. Um, I'm, uh, but yes, you are. You're not only kind technically of. you're my Very supervisor, kind. my uh, major domo, whatever. Um, uh, Yuval Levin, who is the head of what is your division called I, now? I run the research division for social, cultural, and constitutional studies at the American Enterprise Institute. That's right. And you were the second guest, or in the second podcast ever, right? Um, I think that's right. So if you were on the second podcast. You might have. No, because I think the first I think podcast had Ben Sass. Ben Sass was on first. Yes, right. So we're 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 going back to the well here. Um, and um, one of the reasons I thought you'd be the perfect person to do this is I've always been I've been indebted to you for a long time for making one of these arguments. It's very Irving Kristolian in the sense that it the second you hear it, it seems incandescently obvious, but it never occurred to you before you heard it. Um, that conservatism is gratitude. And since this is Thanksgiving, I figured gratitude, Thanksgiving, basically the same thing. Um, we would talk a little bit about gratitude. Right. And uh, so why don't you make your case for about why you see conservatism? And this is not a partisan point in any yeah, way, right? right? Is gratitude. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's true in an obvious sense, first and foremost, that conservatives tried to conserve, which means that we start out being grateful for something we have, maybe something that we inherited, and we see ourselves as here to protect it and preserve it. But I actually think it runs deeper than that. There's a, there's a, there's a difference between left and right that runs to something like anthropology, to a sense of what our idea of the human person is, that I think is related to the question of gratitude, so that people on the left tend to start out thinking that um, that human beings are perfectible or maybe by nature perfected and need just to be liberated from various kinds of oppression in order to be free. People on the right tend to start out thinking that human beings are fallen, that human beings are sinful or are messed up, and that in order to be able to be free, we have to be formed, we have to be shaped by society's institutions by family, by community, by religion, by education, to become better than we start out and to become capable of living in a complicated free society. And that means that we have a lot of respect and admiration for anything that isn't a disaster in human affairs. We assume that the natural condition is not wonderful and free, but the natural condition is uh, is, is warlike and disastrous and a society that's achieved something more than that is is to be respected and regarded and protected. And more than that, the institutions that achieve that for us are really worth preserving. And so because of where we start out really deep, because of how we think about the human person to begin with, we tend to look at a world that is a mix of good and bad and be much more struck by the good than the bad. I think people on the left tend to be more struck by the bad than the good. 
And, you know, a complete society needs both sides, but I think that we're living in a moment where we particularly need to appreciate what is good about what we've inherited, what there is to build on. So to me, even though this is a moment of enormous frustration and anger in our politics, it's actually the perfect time to stop and be grateful for what is good. Yeah, there's a great line from G.K. Chesterton, who was sort of the rotund Catholic Yuval Levin of his time, um, who said, when it comes to life, the critical thing is whether you take things for granted or whether you take them with gratitude. Yeah. And you I, know, I put it a little different. I, I, I like that line. I've always liked that line. It's a very kind of Edmund Burke idea, too. But I think there's a way that left and right both try to prevent society from taking something for granted. Um, people on the left, at their best, are worried that we will walk by injustices and, uh, and, and take them for granted and not stop to think that maybe this shouldn't be happening. This is just part of life. People on the right worry that we'll walk by the achievements of our society, freedom, prosperity, uh, and and the, the justice we've achieved and take it for granted and assume, well, this is just here and, and I'm just going to build from here. But in fact, it needs to be preserved. So I would say at their best, left and right both worry that society will take something for granted. But I'm on the right. I think the danger of our taking the good we have for granted is a much bigger danger. And we do a lot of that now. We assume that this is just going to be here and we don't have to worry about conserving, preserving these institutions. The roots of our freedom, the roots of our wealth, the roots of the good society we have, and that we can just be oppositional. We can just tear down what we don't like. But I think we really have to worry about keeping up and building up what we do like and do want to preserve. So, um, which was basically one of the core insights, which I got from you, I should credit you, um, for why I wrote my book the way I did. Mm -hmm. You know, I ended with this whole thing about gratitude, about how if you were. You know, forget forget the book. I mean, it's sort of the Rawlsian veil of ignorance, which says, yeah. which I think Barack Obama was surprisingly good on this point. You mm -hmm. know, where if you didn't, if you couldn't choose who you were going to, whether you be born rich or poor, black or white, male or female, gay or straight, pick your categories, um, and all you had was the ability to pick the when and the where you would want to be born. It is very difficult to argue that. You wouldn't want to be born around now. Yeah. You know, uh, maybe within um, plus or minus a few years. <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe um, not exactly now. <laughs> um, uh, or maybe you would want to be born now because by the time you're of age, you uh -huh. miss a lot of this stuff. Who knows? But um, And this is something that I think Barack Obama was very good on and his own side didn't want to hear very much. But I guess – so – as you know better than I, you know, I mean, there there are multiple definitions of conservatism out there, right? There's the there's the the temperamental one, which just says that it's a certain approach to life, mm -hmm. which I think doesn't necessarily have an ideological home. I mean, I, I, my sense is it's probably overrepresented in on the right and underrepresented on the left, but I can think of counterexamples on that. And then there's the ideological definitions, which are all over the place. Um, it seems to me, though, that as the 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 temperamental understanding of conservatism is not as at home on the right as it once was. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I think temperamental may be even a little too dismissive about that attitude. I, I think the, the, the view that says that we 
are that we need to understand understand ourselves as part of a human continuum of a society that's been here long before us and will be here long after us and that that for that reason we have a lot to be grateful for that we didn't create and we have a lot of responsibilities for things that to sustain things that we may not enjoy ourselves that attitude which is i think what conservatism is ultimately um that attitude is not universal on the right. It never Mm -hmm. has been. Um, I think that attitude right now is too rare on the right because people are outraged. Um, And, you know, there's there's a tension, obviously, between anger and gratitude. We're living in an angry time. I think we're also living in a fearful time when people have persuaded themselves that we're on the verge of losing everything we care about. And if the next election goes poorly or the next week or the next tweet goes poorly, then we, we lose everything. And so... It creates a situation where we feel like we're always living in triage, where this is an emergency, so let's put aside all the rules because this one really matters. And if everything's an emergency, then there are no rules, and then we really aren't preserving much, and we're just fighting to the death uh, in this kind of endless political match. I think that view is not at home with the conservative disposition, and it puts at risk the kind of uh, the kind of attitude and way of thinking about political life that's essential for uh, for conservatism and that conservatism tries to preserve in society. So it, it seems to me that people have become persuaded that we're on the verge of utter distraction of other destruction, and that means we can't really have a functional conservatism in American life. I'm very alarmed about it. I mean, I think the right has talked itself out of a lot of the premises of conservatism in the last few years in ways that are very dangerous not only for the political movement that has been conservatism, but for what it is we're trying to preserve, for the good that American life can achieve. Um, and so, you know, in that sense, this kind of frantic politics of endless hysteria just isn't good for us. I also think it's just not well grounded in reality. I mean, we are not, in fact, on the verge of losing everything that matters. I don't think it's true that conservatives haven't conserved anything, haven't achieved anything. The fact is left and right both feel like they're always losing in our politics, but both of them also win a fair amount. And if we keep in mind what we're trying to preserve and what we're trying to persuade the next generation of, there's a lot to build on now, as there always is, and we shouldn't lose sight of that. Yeah, isn't that one of – I mean, David French makes this point a lot. It's one of the profound paradoxes of our time is that both sides of the culture war have convinced themselves that the other side – always wins and they never do, which just as a matter of logic can't be true. (laughs) I think part of that has to do with the fact that conservatives tend to care more about culture than about economics and it's vice versa on the left. But the right has tended to win on economics and the left has tended to win on culture. So there's actually some truth to the fact that both sides have been losing at the same time. They've been losing on the front that they most care about. But it seems to me there's also a lot of exaggeration involved in that, and we vastly exaggerate how much the left has won. I mean, the fact that our society is generational, which is a an, a vital conservative insight about society, means that we're always fighting these fights. There's always a rising generation that we can try to persuade of what we believe is true and, and needs to be valued and preserved. But it's harder to persuade when you're running around with your hair on fire screaming that the world is ending. Um, And so I think there's a real cost to the kind of hysteria we've fallen into. And it comes at the cost of exactly what we're trying to achieve in the culture war and what we're trying to preserve in the larger political struggles in our society. So, you know, we've got to have some perspective on this. I'm not saying everything's gone great. Believe me, Mm -hmm. I don't think that's so. Um, 
But it it seems to me that there's a lot more to build on and conserve in American life than a lot of conservatives are giving our country credit for at this point. Yeah, shortly before we started recording this, we're recording this on Monday. So for all I know, by by Thursday, the living will envy the dead, right? But um, for right now, um, we are where we are. And I saw a uh, tweet from a woman, I don't know, but it was one of these things that was going to go viral soon. And... She was saying her rules for Thanksgiving are before you can sit at my table, you have to tell me three things that, or something like this. Tell me three things that you've done to help Democrats get elected in 2020 and (laughs) how you've converted or knocked on doors. I can't remember what it was, but it was a purely political criteria for sitting at the family Thanksgiving table. And I'm sure if I looked with a modicum of interest or, 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 or effort, I could find a conservative version of that as well. And it's disturbing whichever side of the spectrum it comes from. But to your point, it seems to me that if your criteria for who gets to sit at your Thanksgiving table is filtered by, is driven by a political litmus test about what you've done in the the macrocosm of politics— then Thanksgiving now simply has no meaning, right? I mean, yeah, exactly. I, I, you begin from the premise that there's not just something to be thankful for, uh, and you know, I, this kind of politicization is is all around us now in a variety of ways. But I think it's hugely important to to leave some room in life that isn't about that kind of political struggle. And Thanksgiving can be a time to see that because it's a time to stop and see what we have to be grateful for as a country. There is something political about Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is a national holiday that's not a religious holiday. It's established, you know, by, I mean, it begins with a proclamation from George Washington in 1789, and every president since has done that. And so it has a kind of political character, but if you read these proclamations, even from presidents that I don't care for, um, they generally are about taking time to appreciate the gifts we've been given that we haven't really done much to deserve. And when you think about it that way, there's so much to be thankful for that we really can take a break from politics and just appreciate what we have in life. Yeah, I mean, I've mentioned this a few times on the podcast. Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday for a bunch of reasons. One, it's not commercialized, really. Um, Two, the food is better than a lot of other holidays. But most importantly, it's, I mean, I understand your point about Washington starting it, but it really starts before we're even a nation, right? I mean, that's the roots of it. It's about this yep. thing when we were, you know, a colony and um, it's about soil, family and friends and all these pre-political things. Fourth of July is the real yeah. political yeah. Thanksgiving as the expression of gratitude in our country. And Thanksgiving is my kind of nationalism, right? It's very, <laughs> it runs, it's, it's, it, it it should not have a political valence to it, right? Um, yeah. Because it's about these things that are prior to politics. Um, but actually, I want, I want to go back to something you said before because I actually just wanted your take on this for a while. Um, uh, you said that in a way both sides feel like they are losing because the left cares more about economics and the right cares more about uh, culture. I have increasingly come around to the position that um, it's all culture. And that and what I mean by that is is that most of the stuff that drives liberals or progressives, whatever you want to call them, on economics, economics is 
sort of the technocratic language that expresses their cultural ambitions. But if you just look at something like inequality, income inequality on its face really isn't, at least in the context of America, I mean, you can talk about the homeless. That's a real public policy issue. Yeah. I'm not, I don't mean that. But if you just talk about the idea that there are an aesthetically displeasing number of rich people in proportion to the number of poor people or middle class people, and that bothers some some people, mm -hmm. that's fundamentally sort of a cultural argument masquerading as an economics argument. And if you look at the people who espouse socialism, I would generously say not one in a thousand have read much socialist literature. What they're talking about is what Tony Blair called social. He had this very clever thing yeah. where he says social dash ism, right? He believes in sort of social solidarity and everyone working together and being nice and taking care of each other. That's a cultural argument. It's not a, yeah. a an economics argument. And you're now finally seeing a mirror image of it with a lot of this post-liberal, common good capitalism, nationalism stuff on the right. And um, so first, respond to that. And then the second part, which I know you've heard these questions before, is how do you reconcile the fact that arguably the single most or one of the most corrosive forces to culture, to conserving culture or a status quo, is actually the free market and capitalism. Yeah. And it's kind of a weird historical thing that the quote-unquote conservatives in America are trying to conserve a system that is so relentlessly combative with settled institutions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those. I mean, those are two big, great questions. I, I, to the first, I would say I, it's certainly true that a lot of the left's criticism of the market economy is fundamentally a cultural criticism, or at least I would say it's always been basically a moral criticism. There isn't, there hasn't in a long time been a real economic critique of capitalism. And the, the criticisms we've seen have basically been moral criticisms, but they've still, I think, been understood fundamentally as about economics, or they're rooted in a sense that the economic drives or forms the cultural somehow. I still think that's very true for a lot of what the left has to say. Not everything. The left has certainly become much more interested in real cultural questions um, in the last few decades. And it's become the energy on the left is much more on cultural things now than it was. But it still seems to me that a lot of people take it for granted among progressives that what really matters are the economic fights, the fights about inequality, the fights about the character of our economy, about who wins and who loses and how resources are distributed. Um, and I, I do think we've seen a kind of mirror image on the right where there's been some of a something of a turn toward materialistic arguments on the right, people who are making these kind of post-liberal arguments, which I'm, I'm probably a, a little friendlier to some of these than you are, but I think that they are, when they make sense, they are cultural arguments. They are not economic arguments. But they're delivered as economic arguments by some people. I, you know, Marco Rubio, when he talks about these things, very often now will talk about the financialization of the economy and about uh, the, the ways in which our economy provides jobs. And I take him to be making a cultural argument in economic terms. And so to be, in a sense, weakening his own case by not accepting, the, not beginning from the premise that we don't live by bread alone, that these aren't actually economic questions, but that they're cultural questions and that cultural questions are deeper and more significant uh, when they're understood in their own terms. So that's related to the second question you raised. I mean, I think it's not a coincidence and it's not just an American fact that the uh, the friends of market economics are also conservatives. Um, 
you know, Adam Smith and Edmund Burke were friends, and they weren't just personal friends. They agreed on quite a lot, um, and the reason for that has to do, I think, with a with a a common attitude about where knowledge comes from in society and how it can be applied. So that what what struck Burke as valuable about the market economy was that it solved problems through experimentation, that it created the circumstances to try things and see where they went. And that was also how he thought we should solve problems in our cultural life and our political life, um, by beginning from the institutions that exist, beginning from the bottom up and not imagining that we can, uh, as, as Adam Smith says, move human beings like pieces on a chessboard, uh, as if we just control them. I think that that underlying agreement is still present in a lot of the arguments that people make both for markets and for tradition. Hayek is very explicit about this and really sees this um, and, and says in the Constitution of Liberty especially that any genuinely free society is likely to also be a tradition-bound society. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense given the way that he thinks about these questions and I also think it's true. And yet it's also true that markets are disruptive to established institutions. They're disruptive to family. They're disruptive to community because, you know, creative destruction is destructive. Um, it, it, it throws things in the air and experimentation is not what established institutions always need. It seems to me that the, the, the challenge that poses is, is a challenge of balancing goods. And we, it doesn't make sense to just wish that that weren't the case and to say that we can choose either tradition or the market economy because either one without the other in our circumstances would be pretty disastrous. Right. Um, tradition, a traditional society without a market economy would be very poor and we shouldn't want to be very poor. Um, and a market economy that's not bound by tradition – uh, you know, would be a moral pandemonium, and we shouldn't want that either. And the fact is, we don't have to choose one or the other of those. We have to live with the tension. Ultimately, conservatives are about somehow managing that tension. And a lot of the internal tensions within the right have been about figuring out how to balance these things, and in particular circumstances, what to prefer and where to push and where to pull. I don't think there's anything illegitimate about the fact that that's what our politics does. I don't think the fact that we're, that our politics doesn't make perfect sense on paper, that's just not a problem for me. It's, right. it's not going to make sense on paper. American society has never made a damn bit of sense in theory, but it makes a lot of sense in practice. Mm. And, uh, you know, there's a lot about it to preserve and celebrate and appreciate. And so uh, we have to live with this challenge of balancing the good that the market provides us in material terms, the good that our traditions provide us in moral terms. And there is a profound tension between them. I don't think it makes sense to deny that, but, you know, too bad. Right. Tension yeah. is a reality. We've got to deal with it. This is the point that um, Dan Burns made in that essay for, right. for National Affairs. You're also the editor of National Affairs. I should have said that. Mm -hmm. Everyone should subscribe, visit the website. Um, and that was another one of these insights that you that you just shake your fist heavenwards that I wish I had seen about three years ago uh -huh. <laughs> about this distinction between liberal theory and applied liberalism, yeah. where America is a very liberal culture, um, but it's a liberal culture not because we've deduced from Locke or Mill or whoever and said right. we must live in accordance with this theory. Um, I'm reminded. Uh, Kevin Williamson, in his really underrated book, um, I'm going to mess up the title, it's the um, end of the world as we know it and, and I feel fine or something. That's the R.E.M. song, but it's yeah. something close to that. And 
that's it. The end of the year is going to be awesome, which I thought was a really great Nockian. But as much as I tout Albert J. Nock, Kevin is more of a Nockian than I am, uh-huh. um, uh, because he comes by his misanthropy so much more naturally than I do. <laughs> um, but he tells this story, which he admits might be apocryphal, about how when Eisenhower was the president of Columbia University and the architects were arguing and the other administrators were arguing about where to put a path on the campus, on the quad. And one group said here and another group said there. And Eisenhower allegedly, possibly apocryphally, said, let's do nothing and wait a year. And then we'll see what path the students wear out on the campus and we'll pave that, right? So, like, um, we'll see what groove they work out in the grass and, aha, that's where they're going to walk. I like that a lot, yeah. right? And that's that sort of gets the the causality right about where liberal theory and culture interplay is mm-hmm. that liberal theory is really the law is really important for codifying best practices, but a lot of those best practices emerge through culture first and then we say okay, what is the insight here right. that we need to, I mean I'm I'm not going to get deep into Hayek's law and legislation stuff, but there's a yep. really interesting tension there. And I think we Lose that. And so what bothers me about, which I, you know, I understand you're more sympathetic to him than I am. This is a point I made with, with Dan. Um, I'm a big Hayek guy, you know, and Hayek's case against planners is not aimed purely at socialists. Yeah. Right. It's, it's against planning qua planning. Of all parties. Right. And, um, the idea that Marco Rubio, I may agree with Marco Rubio a lot more than I do with Bernie Sanders, and I may want, I may prefer to have Marco Rubio design the economic system that we all must live under, but I have equally little faith in Marco as I do in Bernie in being able to deduce from one branch of, of one branch of our federal government how our entire economy is supposed to be organized. And that's my problem with, with yep. so much of this stuff is it, it's it's right-wing planning. And so obviously because it's right-wing, I'll be more sympathetic. But I still don't believe they, they've cracked the knowledge problem and, and right. all of that kind of stuff. I, I certainly agree with that. I, I think there's a lot there. And I love that story about Eisenhower, which I, I, it's implausible, but it's just much too good to check. And exactly. it's, it's a very useful story. Um, I think it gets it a lot. And it's also just a fact as a historical matter that the theories that describe liberalism came to be to describe an already existing society. Right. They were not a theory that was then put into effect. Smith is the best society. example of that, yeah, right? Smith, he was an empirical economist observing absolutely. things. He was yeah. living in Scotland in the 18th century, and that's where capitalism got going, and he, was, he tried to understand it. But Locke, too. Locke was trying to describe an already existing British political system in a way that didn't rely on arguments that began with religion. And so he worked around various kinds of of intellectual problems to arrive at a case for that society that was self-sustaining without reference to either Catholicism or Protestantism. But the society was already there, and it didn't didn't come to be because of Lockean arguments. Um, And, you know, I, I think it's very easy to see when it comes to American society because the theories that we have had to describe ourselves over the years have always been much thinner than the actual experience of American life. They've always been very individualistic. They've always been kind of mechanical. They've been sort of thin. 
And the actual experience of American life has always been communal and has always been sort of much thicker, much more about civil society institutions that don't really have all that much of a place in liberal philosophy. Um, you, you almost have to stretch it to make room for them. But in fact, they are where liberalism exists. And I certainly agree with you that, that the emphasis on that point doesn't, to me at least, suggest that we should therefore be capable of planning, provided that our goals are the right goals. I think what what Rubio and others, Josh Hawley and so on, are, are arguing for is a is a matter of degree. It's a it's it's not a fundamental change about how we ought to think about the role of government, but they they want to suggest that we have been too easy in our talk, in our theory, in the way we explain ourselves to ourselves that we've inclined too much to think that markets resolve their own problems. Um, and there's some truth to that. I don't mm-hmm. think it's entirely true. I think some of the frustration about libertarians is actually frustration about the media and not about public policy. That is, they've put out all these ideas that they like and that I like, and uh, then the Wall Street Journal says this is communism, and mm-hmm. that's very frustrating. But that doesn't really mean that we've been a hyper-libertarian society for the last 30 years, which I, I don't really think we have when it comes to public policy. Um, and again, I think those arguments are much more right about culture than they are about economics. And it's also truer when it comes to culture that we have been a libertarian society. Um, we've inclined toward individualism both in speech and in practice when we talk about American culture to a degree that I think goes to excess. That doesn't argue for government action, but I think it argues for a different way of speaking about American life, uh, again, as a matter of degree. Um, so the question I get, not more than any other, but it's pretty high up there when I talk about the themes of my book and gratitude and all these sorts of things is, um, is it possible to have a rightly ordered society that puts that has the beneficial sort of what uh, individualism rightly understood, right? Um, one of that is rooted in family and institutions and a sense of obligations to your fellow man that, that come organically from good character and all of that. Is it possible to have that in a secular society? I don't have an answer. I'm just curious if you do. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's a hard question. I, I think if it were possible, it would be possible temporarily while that society lived off the capital built up over many generations uh, in the West, um, basically through religious institutions. So I think it's imaginable that you could do that in an entirely secular society for a while. But the trouble, as conservatives are always want to say, is that society is generational and another generation will come on the scene and it's not going to begin where its parents leave off. It's going to begin where its parents started and whenever, where everyone has always started. Um, you know, and that means that it's going to have to be brought up to the level of civilized life by the institutions of that society. And over generations, I think that it's very hard to imagine how that can be sustained in a truly secular society. Yeah. So I, I don't think so. But I would say we're pretty far from a secular society. American mm-hmm. society, for all that we can complain about people not going to church as much as they used to, American society is quite a religious society, certainly in comparison to others in the West, and also in some ways in comparison to itself at different times. 19th century America was less religious than 21st century America, not, not more in some important ways. And so you know, I think we've lost something of the religious consensus that – 
seems to have prevailed in certainly the middle of the 20th century, and maybe in some ways before that too, but that we don't have that consensus doesn't mean that we're a secular society. I think it seems to me reasonably plausible that our society looks more religious in 20 years than it does today, not less, because we're in a moment when people are searching, when a rising generation is dissatisfied with the world that it's inheriting, and where the where younger people who are religious are more orthodox in their religion than older people who are mm-hmm. religious. And that's what things look like before a great awakening. We can't be sure that that's what will happen, and you can't order one up. But uh, I, I don't think that America's become secularized or that we're even at a place where uh, where we find Europe today, where I think there is real reason to worry on that front. So I guess my answer to you is I don't know if the, if Western civilization can be sustained in a secular way, but I don't think that's the challenge we face, really. Yeah, I mean, um, what do you have an operative theory about? I mean, Europe, Europe's got its problems, fertility rate plummeting, um, but it is not the hellhole that yeah. you would think. You know, when you sort of listen to the Ron Swanson kind of uh, talk radio crowd, um, it's it's. It's a perfectly nice place to visit. My daughter's in Spain for a year. I visited her. I mean, there are people who are living pretty decent lives, even though they're not particularly religious. I mean, are they just all living off of the social capital, or have they worked out the grooves from their paths, like the students at Columbia, in a way that they've figured out an ethical culture? I mean, again, I don't have an answer to this. I'm not trying to be argumentative. I'm just kind of curious on your Well, I don't either. I I wouldn't say that I know. I think that there is... um... I think Europe has enormous problems, and in some ways, the relationship between Europe and the United States for a very long time, since before our independence, has been that Europe confronts massive problems, and then the United States confronts smaller versions of those same problems, yeah. um, so that you know they, they had a horrendous age of revolutions, and we had a much more peaceful revolution. Uh, they lived through industrialization in a way that destroyed the basic structure of a lot of European societies. Our industrialization was tough, but not nearly so much so. I think we've lived through the same kinds of things since the end of the Second World War, where we've gone through a process of a certain kind of secularization, but theirs was much more dramatic. They're now under stresses that are driving populisms that are much more extreme than anything we're seeing here. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think Europe has big problems, but as you say, it, it hasn't been destroyed by them. Uh, in some ways, you could say the same thing about the United States. If you told an American in 1950 that in, that in 2019, four out of ten children would be born to a family where the father was not present, and then asked that person to, to, to describe what our society would look like in 2019, I think the picture you'd get would be much, much darker than mm-hmm. what our society actually looks like. People do find ways to live in challenging circumstances, and we do find ways to make some sense and order out of very challenging realities. Um, and Europe has found that way too, but I think Europe is in much deeper trouble than we are. Um, yeah, I mean, there's also, which was a point I was much more worried about in the early days of the after 9-11, is that Europe has a great tradition of obliviousness to, I mean, it's a different kind of conservatism in a way, right? They just assume that their elite institutions can handle everything. They ignore problems until they really fester. And then they invite really ugly backlashes. Um, 
France, if it gets to the point where it just decides that Muslim immigrants are a huge problem, it'll be a much uglier place <laughs> than, than yep. the United States will. Um, and it's a non-liberal conservatism, which uh, means that when it is when it is motivated to act, it can act in ways that are much darker than what we're likely to see here. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, I do think I want to I want to pivot now to sort of the role of institutions and whatnot. I don't want you to give away the goods on your forthcoming book. Uh-huh. Everyone is very much looking forward to. Um, um, but institutions are a hugely important part of this mix yes. and um, and that's one reason why people who agree with people like you and me might want to support donors trust as we've been in the business of discussing gratitude today who better to be a sponsor than donors trust donors trust specializes in making charitable giving easier and more tax friendly for their clients Many of you are remnant loyalists and have heard of Donors Trust or seen them in friendly publications. It's a great partnership because Donors Trust was built with our listeners in mind. Charitable people who think America's founding was a pretty good thing and that free markets have done an awful lot to lift people out of poverty by the billions. As the end of the year approaches, now is the perfect time to take a closer look at Donors Donors Trust's Donor Advised Fund and see how it could benefit you. If you aren't familiar with donor-advised funds, think of it as your personal charitable savings account. It's a great tool for maximizing your charitable tax benefits while offering a simpler way to give. And Donors Trust is more than a way to give. It's a partner that cares a lot about donor intent and works with charitable givers of all sizes across the country. The team from Donors Trust will work with you to protect your charitable legacy and help you achieve your charitable goals. Some of you might be considering a donor-advised fund anyway. Why not par- partner with the fund that shares your outlook on the world? For Remnant listeners, that's Donors Trust. Learn how a donor-advised fund with Donors Trust can simplify your charitable giving with a free copy of Six Reasons to Use a Donor-Advised Fund. Go to DonorsTrust.org Dingo. That's DonorsTrust.org Dingo to see how Donors Trust can be your principled partner in giving. So, um, this podcast is all about the segues. Yes, I admire the smoothness of that. <laughs> there are often moments in life when I think, you know, now would be a great time to talk about sleep <laughs> number beds. Yeah, that's right. Um, you actually get to do it. Um, it's the most radio-like thing about podcasting <laughs> is trying to organically work in, you know, these ads. Um, so, one, let me put it this way. One, I think you'll agree in parts and disagree in parts. One of the answers that I'm I'm just trying to work through on my own about this answer about secularism versus religion. I think religion is hugely important. Um, even though I'm not particularly religious, I know you are, but I'm very much like Irving Kristol. I think that, and I hate to say it a little bit like Napoleon, <laughs> um, I think... <laughs> Religion plays an enormously important role in forming good character and in organizing a society and ripping it out. Um, you know, this, was it Diderot who says he wanted to strangle the last right. priest? Last, last king in the entrails of the last priest. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, that ethos, I become very Chestertonian about it. Like the replacement that comes with that kind of transition would be very bad. But um, I increasingly think that the 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 best way... 
it's only a partial point about the secularism thing, but the best philosophy of life as a personal level and for a society is for is what I would is portfolio management mm-hmm. is to have more institutions that give you a sense of meaning. Um, yeah. The more you have, the more society has. It's like um, scientists talk about rich ecosystems and 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 desiccated ecosystems. The the more biodiversity you have in a society in terms of competing institutions, different niches. Like um, I'm a big fan of. Uh, I'm fascinated by um, artificial reefs. Mm-hmm. Um, reefs are like the institution. They're the societies that provide most of the life in the oceans. And, and when you build artificial ones, you get this enormous explosion in fish populations and all sorts of things. You need more institutions that um, provide safe harbors for individuals. But those individuals need to be able to move from one institution to another. And um, in the, much the same way that trees are incredibly useful for preventing soil erosion, um, the more trees you have, the more it holds the soil in place, the more it allows other life forms to come in. And when you have institutions that hold the soil in place, they allow all sorts of other creatures to go back and forth between them. The, the reason why I worry about society today is that we are... Um, sort of washing away a lot of these institutions and not replacing them. And the second you start having people, I'm not, I'm not, I'm sort of grasping and trying to explain myself, but when you start telling people they only need one source of identity that because they're black or because they're conservatives or they're Christians or whatever, if that provides all of their meaning in every aspect of their lives, any threat to that identity becomes an existential one. Yeah. But if you actually have all of these different hats you can wear in society and that you're a father but you're and a husband, but you're also, you know, uh, an accountant and a softball coach. And all, if you're Tim Carney and you have all these different things going on in your life, the threat to any one of them is still bad and you still worry about it. But it helps you keep things in perspective. And I think the, the societal loss of perspective we have these days is because people more and more define themselves by by a very few kinds of identity. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is very much on the subject of this book you mentioned. That Thank you for mentioning it. It's coming January 21st. It's called A Time to Build. Um, everyone should buy it and some should read it. Um, I, I think it's... I, I, I would I would talk about it maybe in terms of of the absolute necessity for something like a diversity of institutional forms in a society. Institutions, in a way, are forms. They're forms of of our common life, and they serve different purposes. They serve those purposes in different ways, and in each case, they serve an important purpose by forming people, by by describing a certain kind of integrity that people can work to live up to. And then feel a sense of belonging to, uh, with. I think part of what we've seen in our society is that our different institutions have come to all see themselves as serving the same purpose. Mm-hmm. And in a se- one way to think about that purpose is a kind of culture war purpose. So there's no difference now between what happens at the New York Times and what happens at Brown University. They're both just places to yell about oppression. And a lot of our other institutions are transforming themselves into just places to yell about oppression. Thanksgiving is just a 
slightly different reason to meet up with a bunch of Democratic organizers. Exactly. It's all the same. They all serve the same purposes, just in somewhat different ways. And what you lose in the course of that is just about everything, right? Because, in fact, a newspaper actually serves a very important purpose, and it has a form. It has a way of creating integrity through a certain process of verifying the truth. We need that kind of thing. And a university has its own very distinct purpose and, and serves an important role in society. And if both of those come to serve the same third purpose, then no one is serving those two, and we've lost a way of uh, of forming human beings, of forming attachments, of creating diverse niches in our society uh, where people can find meaning and find belonging. And we have seen a flattening of those, both, I think, because uh, we've had this kind of growing culture war that takes over our national politics, but also at the same time, because all of these institutions have come to see themselves as existing to enable individuals to express themselves. They've gone from seeing themselves as molds of people's character to seeing themselves as platforms uh, for people to, to be themselves. So that if you were to apply to Brown University now, you would find in their admissions material that they basically want you to be yourself and they want Mm -hmm. to celebrate who you are. And that's not what a university is for. A university is for taking undereducated people and educating them. Um, And uh, very few of our institutions now have the self-confidence to say that that's the kind of thing they're for. Those very few institutions tend to be the ones that we still trust like the military, is an exception to the, the, the pattern that we don't trust any of our institutions. And I think it's an exception not so much because it's so great at, at defeating our enemies, though it is, but because it unabashedly forms people. It gives them a certain shape and turns them into a certain human type, and we like that type. We trust that type. We know that, it's, that that's a type of person who takes integrity and honor seriously. Very few of our institutions are willing now to say that that's what they're for, And as a result, they don't have as much of a hold on us. They don't have as much of a way of forming us and shaping us and so also of of calling on our loyalty. And people find that there are fewer things to belong to and that they identify themselves, as you say, in cultural and political cultural terms. Um, I think that's a big part of what has driven the, the, the peculiar kind of social crisis that we're living through where we have more ways to be connected than ever, but people are feeling lonely. Mm-hmm. And we have more ways of expressing ourselves than ever, but people feel like nobody knows them. I think that has a lot to do with a, a shortage of institutional types. But it's not a simple problem to solve because you can't, just, you can't just expect people to belong to institutions because those places will make them better. I think one of the great insights that, that Robert Nisbet, the 20th century sociologist, had was that institutions only really are functional when they serve a purpose, a real purpose in people's lives. He said people don't come together to be together. People come together to do something together. Right. And so when it's not clear really what purpose local government or civil society or the church plays in your life, then it's, that institution is not as attractive. It doesn't give people meaning and definition in the way that it used to. And so you can't just say, I wish people went to church again. You have to look for ways to, to to allow people to see why they ought to. And those ways can't just be, it would be good for you. We're just, none of us is actually going to do that. Right. Going to just go to a meeting because it would be nice to spend more time with people. I don't, you know, I don't know about you, but and I, I talk about communitarianism for a living, but I don't think I would do that. <laughs> uh, we, we do it when it seems to serve a purpose in our lives. And that means that we have to think about politics and public policy, and we have to think about our culture and society 
in ways that make room for those kinds of institutions to matter. Yeah, so this gets to your, the point of your previous book, uh, Fractured Republic, which, mm-hmm. you know, I basically hook straight to my veins. Um, one way of doing that would be to send as much power down the most local level possible, right? right? If, if, if local politicians were the ones who could solve your problems, people would care a lot more about local politics. If the people who, if the politicians at the local level could solve your problems, you'd care much more about local journalism. If the local politicians couldn't solve your problems, institutions like churches and synagogues and mosques and the rest would step up to fill the void. But when you outsource that functionality to a government very far away, mm-hmm. you 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 know you basically sap the institutional strength of these institutions, and it's a huge problem. The example, I think I brought this up with Tim Carney on his, during his podcast, and his book was great on this stuff, yes. um, where when I was the editor, co-editor of my college newspaper, we came on board um, right before, really, all of the great new technological waves for... Um, um, desktop publishing, right? You know, mm-hmm. um, when I started as a freshman working on the newspaper, every two weeks, we had to take out X-Acto knives, print out these co- newspaper articles, cut them and glue them to a sheet that we would then send to a printer. And it took a lot of work. It was one of these things where everybody on staff, that was the reason you showed up was to actually do that. And it created a sense of community, esprit de corps, you know, like that's how you got to meet the other people who worked on the paper. My, my, when I took over the paper with my friend, um, we thought we were like brilliant for switching to an early Mac computer and doing desktop publishing and all the rest. And the thing that happened though was that no one had a reason to hang out in the office mm-hmm. anymore because they just they handed off a floppy disk that was back in those days, and then we had to do the rest. And so he and I and like one other person, we really bonded because we had to be there all the time. But everybody else were just sort of mailing, almost literally mailing it in. And you get that, I think that, 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 that point about necessity is the mother of invention, we forget that about institutions. They have to serve a purpose, otherwise um, people just aren't going to really show up. Yeah, I think that's right. But it, it's, it's not as though we're living in a time when there aren't problems to be solved. And so I think the, the fact that we aren't building institutions in the way that Americans have in the past to address new problems... Um, is in some ways a function of this sense that we've we've lost the knack for th- for seeing that we can solve our problems from the bottom up. Uh, you know, Tocqueville said in the 1830s that in in France, when when uh, a cart overturns on the path, people stand around with their arms folded, waiting for an official to show up. <laughs> and in America, they just turn the thing back, right? Um, and you know, go and wake the neighbors. And I, I think that the the loss of that kind of assumption or that kind of sense that we can build institutions, we can reform institutions to address problems we now face uh, is part of this sense of, uh, of loss of agency that affects a lot of people. I spent a lot of time with members of Congress, which I don't recommend, but I think the, 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 the absence of, an, of a sense that they could change the Congress to fix the problems they don't like, the, the absence of that is a very striking thing about this moment. Everybody complains about the budget process. But their Congress, they could change the budget process to be whatever they want. But very few people actually think in terms of how could we change this place. I think that's the case at a lot of levels of American life at this point. 
And one way to change things for the better would be to try to inculcate the sense that if we don't like how this is going, let's change how this is going. Or if there are problems we need to solve right now, if we face a massive challenge of how to integrate a generation of immigrants who have come to America in the last 20 years, well, let's build something. Mm -hmm. What is it going to look like? What should it involve? What could it do at the local level? What could it do at the national level? I don't think there's enough of that kind of conversation going on. And it seems to me that that, rather than the big, broad culture war, would be a way to spend our time that would also result in some constructive institution building that could give people something to belong to. Um, William F. Buckley wrote, because we're going we're, we're to wrap up soon, but I wanted to get to this. William F. Buckley wrote a book called Gratitude. Yeah. And um, a big part of his argument was that he wanted, that he changed his mind about national service, made Milton Friedman and a bunch of people angry. And one of the things I liked about, about Buckley's approach was that and it's sort of where I've come around on all of this. I'm much more open to national service than I used to be. I'm not quite sold yet, but mm-hmm. um but one of the things he wanted to do was make sure his idea was to create basically a mechanism by which we just block granted national basically to state service, yeah. right? Where each state got to define the problem the way they wanted. It wasn't going to be conscription, it was going to be there were going to be inducements to do it. Right. And and part of Buckley's argument was that um, as he put it, I actually printed it out, materialist democracy beckons every man to make himself a king. Republican citizenship incites every man to be a knight. And it's very, very yeah. Buckley-ish, but also quite Levin, you know, Yuval-ish <laughs> in its own way by sort of inculcating a sense of obligation to society at the local level yeah. might solve some of these these problems. Um, where do you come down on, on that kind of approach to stuff? I, I, I like that argument and I like that book. I, I, I find it very appealing. I think the practical problems of national service are enormous and shouldn't mm-hmm. be underestimated. And and those are problems that if we if we do it wrong, things could go very badly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, national service would have to find something to do for, what, about three and a half, four million 18-year-olds every year. Mm-hmm. And it's not, as I say, it's not as though we, we don't have problems to solve. But the number of problems to solve we have that could be readily taken up by 4 million 18-year-olds may be smaller than we think. Yeah, and that's fair. underemployed 18-year-olds are the worst human beings in the world. <laughs> so we should be very careful not to assume that this would be easy to do. I think it's something to try. It's something to try in this way, in a, in a kind of uh, decentralized way. Uh, in states that are up to it first, uh, I'm open. I'm very open to it and friendly to it in principle. But I think it's the sort of thing that you've got to see in practice before you really go at it, because doing it wrong could be a very bad idea. Yeah, and we are conservatives after all. And we are conservatives. All right, so uh, just to sort of end on this, because in my mind this was going to be a podcast where we just talk about all the things we should be grateful for, and instead, <laughs> because we're conservatives, we just found all the things to complain about. <laughs> um, um, if you had to make the case to an underemployed 18-year-old why they should actually be grateful to live in this country at this time. What would be your case? Yeah. Well, first of all, the case looks like a history course, right? As we said before, there there isn't really a place you'd rather be if you think about it. There probably isn't really a time you'd rather be. Um, it also seems to me that we have to recognize how much has been done by other people to make our lives better and easier in this society it's not the case that this is a perfect country or that it's got nothing to answer for. But the fact is that this is a country that 
that combines in itself, in its being, in its story, in its contemporary reality, a a, a, a a practical devotion to freedom with a principled commitment to the the highest ideals of the West in a way that's never been achieved anywhere else in human history. And we should be enormously grateful to be here. We are very, very lucky to have the inheritance that we have. But that luck, that gratitude should should form itself into a sense of responsibility. Whether that drives you to preserve the best of what you love most in this country, whether that drives you to fix the worst of what you think needs changing in this country, either way, that ought to be rooted in gratitude. And the things you find that you don't like, you need to form yourself into an alternative to those things. If you're young, that means you're going to outlast the people who drive you crazy in America. So be better than them and try to be the solution to the problems that you see around you. I think there's a huge amount to be grateful for. And before we end, Joan, I also want to say I am very grateful for the project that you've undertaken here, for the remnant and for the model that you've offered to people like me who, you know, maybe don't think that our president is the chosen one, but (laughs) who do think that there are good things and bad things happening now that we have to keep a level head to tell the difference and that we've got to keep reminding people about what matters most, which isn't what our politics is focused on right now. There aren't enough places to turn, and this has really been one, so I'm very grateful for it. Well, thank you very much, you all. That's, that's very kind of you. Um, I'm, we're not going to turn this into a mutual admiration society because I plug you and your stuff all the time on this podcast because you are sort of a dashboard saint for a lot of us. Um, yeah, I mean, the only thing I would sort of say is I mean, I agree with all of that. If you actually organize your life around trying to be a good person, who's good to your friends, good to your family, um, who tries to do right as you see it, and lives a life where you try to engage these institutions that matter in good faith, trying to make life better at the local level, the amount you care about national politics will shrink remarkably. Absolutely, A big chunk of the problem we have now is that People are sitting on their couches watching politics as a form of entertainment. And if they were actually out in the world doing stuff, they would encounter people who disagree with them on politics and realize they're not evil, mm-hmm. um, most of them. And um, <laughs> and they would um, and they would look at politics as this. And that's one of the reasons. That's the remnant thing that I think about. Right? Is that yeah. there's still an enormous wellspring of incredibly decent people in this country, Democrats and Republicans alike. And even the Republicans who I tend to disagree most with these days, when you actually meet them in the real world, in the corporeal world, they're still pretty decent people. Yep. You know, um, it's the it's the horror show, you know, funhouse mirror stuff in Washington that makes people act like caricatures. But in real life, you know, this is a really good and decent country. And um, and the one thing I think that would make it less so is if everyone took at things looked at things like Thanksgiving as merely another institution by which to extend political combat. Exactly. Yep. Um, all right. I'm sorry for taking the last word on this, but um, not at all. Thank you. You've all live in books coming out in January. It's going to be called first. It's called a time to build. A time to build. Uh, thank you for coming on the remnant. Thank you. All right, so Yuval's left the studio, but not the building because he works here. Um, Jack, was that too dyspeptic, a Thanksgiving conversation? Um, Gloomy? 
It was not a. It did, it only only when you got to the end did it end up being about what, what it's supposed to be about. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know, but I'm sure people will still like it. Yeah, that's that's my fault. Um, also, it's just Yuval's a very difficult guy to tease enthusiasm out of. Um, but uh, to be honest, we are still in the afterglow of the English language of the English of the uh, Anglo sphere accent competition. The person who would have been ideal for the Thanksgiving episode would be Charlie Cook, because. I think he likes America more than about 95% of native-born Americans. Um, and he's constantly writing about how much he loves the place. So maybe next year for Thanksgiving we'll do that. Um, are you going home to Ohio? Yes. Are you looking forward to going home to Ohio? Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, because my daughter is in Spain, my wife and I are going to Georgia, to Sea Island, Georgia. We're very excited about it, and we're bringing the dogs with us. Which means, for the- do, they, do they just let people on the Sea Island? Uh, they do if you're paying for a hotel room there. <laughs> okay, and uh, I know that's that's where the Fed was born, among other things. Uh, there's that, um, and I believe the first transatlantic phone call was from around there because, like, the head of AT and T had his house somewhere. Someone told me that. I'll have to investigate that, um, but. Uh, the really interesting part is that this is the closest since we got Zoe, our our Carolina dog, um, to her native homeland that she has been to since she was a puppy who almost died from parvo because the Carolina dog's indigenous um, uh, habitat is in uh, South Carolina and this part of Georgia. And so it's going to be interesting to see her unleashed on the, on as, you know, the the native habitat and whether just the heavens are going to ring out born free as we let her off leash. But we're really looking forward to that. Uh, could I give you a warning about that area? Sure. Uh, there's a nuke somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's in the ocean. Mean, in the ocean? Yeah. It's somewhere. It's there. Uh-huh. It was dropped some point in the 50s, never found. So just be just be on the lookout. That's good to know. Okay. Yeah. Um I thought you were going to say there's a nuclear power plant because there is in South Carolina where – I think it's South Carolina. Maybe it's Georgia. The The New York Times did a big piece about Carolina dogs and this researcher, this biologist who helped get them recognized as a breed, um, worked uh, – found them in the, the sort of Chernobyl zone of no – you know, of, of close to people around this nuclear power plant. And they were living in the swamps around there for a very long time. And so it'd be kind of fun to actually go off and find, you know, some wild American dingoes and see what Zoe does. <laughs> My guess is she would run away, but certainly Pippa would. Um, or they would start talking to each other. Yes. Or maybe Zoe would just suddenly turn on me. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, uh, if people have uh, recommendations about where we should uh, take dogs in that part of the world, um, please drop me a line. But beyond that, uh, I want everybody to have a great Thanksgiving. Talk about politics if you want, but don't make it about politics. Make it about, you know, the things that are important. Um, and uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, Jack, any final Thanksgiving notes or anything like that? Um, or do we have any bad takes about Thanksgiving food? It's apparently something that people do. Oh, that's the time what the people year. want. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
I'm generally opposed to green beans. Oh, yeah, I don't like those. Uh, I don't like – I don't think marshmallow should be in anything because I do not like marshmallow, but I particularly don't like marshmallow in, like, uh, sweet potatoes and that kind of stuff. I think it's kind of grotesque because it's, it's, like it's like putting syrup on marshmallows. It's like putting sugar on sugar. <laughs> um, I'm very much opposed. I'm much more of a savory Thanksgiving guy. Uh, dark meat is superior to white meat. Um, that's a fact. It can't be argued with. Um, and uh, – Gravy is always good on everything. Um, trying to think, what what are, what are controversial Thanksgiving food takes? Well, we'll find out, won't we? Yeah, <laughs> um, um, I do like that Tom Nichols. Whatever you think of Tom Nichols, um, someone started this incredibly. I don't think they intended it to be this, but it became incredibly contentious uh, tweet controversy where they said, "Get you know the guy." Someone tweeted. Share your most controversial uh, food take. And Tom Nichols said, Indian food is awful and we all pretend like it isn't. I disagree with them entirely. I love Indian food. But I love the people saying that um, it's racist and colonial um, um, and are imperial, imperialist to uh, say – for a white man to say they don't like Indian food. Um, um, and – there's a lot of buffoonery on Twitter about all of that, but we not get, need not get in the weeds of all of that. Um, I do think the turkey is generally a bad bird, um, and the best way to prepare turkey is to deep fry it. It's the only thing that keeps it truly moist. Oh, I thought you were going to make the case for, for executing the traditionally pardoned turkeys, as in that turkey is a a poorly behaved bird. No, um although I did I did point out on Twitter that technically we shouldn't call it a pardon because they weren't um they committed no crime so you can't you only pardon Now who's crime. being naive? You, um uh technically we should call it a commutation of a sentence, right? Because they were under death death sentence and their sentence was commuted. Um but there was no crime to pardon them for. Um but sure. Um but I don't understand that you're the kind of person who just sees any turkey out there and thinks it needs killing. Um, yeah, I'm. I like turkey. I'd li- I want to eat every turkey I see. Oh, the last my last uh, controversial take is that uh, Thanksgiving leftovers are better than Thanksgiving dinner. I I fail to see the controversy in that. Um, tur- a a good turkey sandwich, um, with all the right ingredients, is better than a hot turkey um on your plate kind of thing particularly turkey breast which is just wet cardboard so um okay now that's controversial (laughs) all right so with that happy thanksgiving jack happy thanksgiving to our listeners and um i'll see you next week this conversation can serve no purpose anymore goodbye a bunch of other things but
I figured you were the right person for this. Doing an exciting event about prudence at 5 o'clock. So I'm Are you really? Doing, uh, yeah, no, that's that's going to get wild. Diana Schaub.